thing. It's it's good to be talking. Um, I'll just let our listeners know that I've been an advisor to Outreach Circle uh, for several years, um, but we haven't caught up in in a while. And I'm really eager to hear about uh, developments in the platform and also just to talk about uh, how folks uh, are using uh, these organizing technology tools uh, in the field and uh, how you hope that they will use them as we go into this, you know, really big uh, election year. You know, I, th I think it's, it's so crazy that every two years we elect, you know, every member of Congress. Uh, we've got a third of the Senate up for election. We've got this really heated, spirited presidential campaign. Uh, plus, all kinds of uh, movement organizations are doing uh, tech-enabled organizing work on a, on a daily basis, uh, year in and year out. You've got a lot of um, experience under your belt uh, at this point. One of the things that I'm interested in about Outreach Circle is this concept of relational organizing. And last week we had uh, guests on who were talking about a, a new product that's coming out called Open Field, and they were talking about how important it is to uh, knock every door when you're organizing a community and really keep up uh, the thread of conversation uh, with those folks you're organizing. And I think that's something Outreach Circle does really well. Can, can you explain relational organizing and, and, and um, what that means in the context of Outreach Circle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, relational organizing, it's not really a new term. It's been around for a long time. It's really just friends reaching out to friends instead of, you know, strangers reaching out to people that they don't know. More recently, there's been uh, tech tools um, that try to automate the process. You know, we really pioneered some of the new approaches to this back in 2015. But when I was running for office, I found it very odd that I would have to knock on doors uh, for people that I didn't know or phone bank people that I'd never met. And I thought, gosh, if I wanted to reach Mary on Pepper Drive, wouldn't it make a lot more sense to find a friend that knew Mary and then talk to that friend and have that friend talk to Mary to you know, vouch for me and my campaign? And so that's how I approached it in my race. And that's how we approach it with Outreach Circle. We just make it easy for uh, supporters of a campaign or a cause to reach out to their friends versus having them to reach out to strangers. It seems a little bit similar to what the Obama campaign kind of, uh, I, I would say pioneered, although it was not a new idea. It was just new at, at scale, which they called the snowflake model of organizing, where you would kind of, you would have a group that you were touching directly and then they'd be reaching out to others. But what you've done is use technology to make it easier for people to find those connections. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's right. And if my understanding of the snowflake model is correct, there's two parts to that. One is using pre-existing relationships, but part of the snowflake model was also to form new relationships in given communities. And so we do that with our affinity texting product. With the relational product, it's really about uh, taking advantage of pre-existing um, relationships. And I, um, I sent in on a, a webinar that you did with a partner at last fall, um, and I think that it, there's now at least two studies that show a, a demonstrable lift among voters reached with relational organizing. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that's been done about this and, and, and what it means for campaigns? Yeah, absolutely. So we've done tons of internal studies you know, for the past four or five years showing, you know, 5, 10, sort of 15-point turnout bumps for wow. relational outreach versus traditional outreach. But, you know, those reports were performed by us and not a third party, so people were a little bit skeptical and felt the numbers seemed too high. Um, recently, we've gotten validation from external third-party researchers. Um, one is Professor Green, who wrote uh, Get Out the Vote. It's, I think it's now in its third or fourth edition. He's a professor at Columbia University. So he's kind of the gold standard in research um, for electoral research. And we did a 13 state pilot um, or a randomized control trial with Alliance for Climate Education last year, where Professor Green was the researcher. And we did a randomized control trial having supporters reach out to friends. And we compared that to turnout of people that were not contacted. And it showed about a 4% turnout bump. And this won uh, an ESPY award from the Analyst Institute. So we're quite pleased with those results. What was astonishing with this study was 
this study was done with a simple email from a friend, and that was just one email from a friend to a friend. It didn't leverage our texting capabilities or anything else in the platform, and they only leveraged one message. And it still showed a really significant lift. And what Professor Green was especially excited about, if you look at any study that's been done with email, the vast majority of studies that ask uh, voters to vote by email shows zero turnout effect, or sometimes even shows a negative turnout effect. People get annoyed by all the emails and then actually vote less. Mm. Whereas in this study, it was since it was coming from a trusted messenger, from a friend to a friend, we actually saw a significant turnout bump. And so this is four points in a general election um, in the 2018 midterms. And then we also had a study published um, in a down-ballot race. This was published in Politics and Policy in April of last year, and that showed north of a 20% turnout bump in a down-ballot race versus the control group, um, and so or versus uh, other voters not uh, contacted by a uh, outreach circle. And so both of those studies showed really strong results. And I want to make sure I'm understanding like what a four-point turnout boost means because uh, you know there are elections that have very low turnout, there are elections that have very high turnout. Is, is that like if the the regular turnout is 35%, you get 39 by getting friends to email friends. Yes, that's exactly right. So it's and actually so a really big boost in terms of the percentage lift. Exactly. Yep. So 35 would go to 39. Um, and then the other study I was talking about that was published in Politics and Policy, I forgot to mention that was Professor uh, Cormack out of Stevens Institute that did that study. And I think in that study, the numbers went something from like, 20 up to 40 or something like that. So really, really big uh, wow. differences. And congratulations on the recognition from the Analyst Institute. I'm familiar with some of their work around canvassing and a lot of the, the history of this. You know, I've been in political technology for a long time, uh, relatively, and you know, it was always a big fight because uh, uh, the most of the studies have been around like door-to-door -door canvassing and saying that that provides a lift and basically nothing else does, you know. And we know that, uh, you know, when Bloomberg spends hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, advertising, we know that that creates a lift. But the studies just, you know, uh, from organizers have, have been very much about the face-to-face -face contact. Um, are you seeing... Uh, maybe more traditional organizing institutions and, and groups um, come around on, on this technology stuff, or, or do we still have ways to go? So, you know, we still believe that, you know, person-to-person -person contact still has a place, and we think that is uh, the most impactful way to do uh, cold outreach when it's stranger to stranger. But we think even with in-person contact, we think that is also done better friend to friend. And so it's, this is not saying that you should not do in-person uh, outreach. What we're saying is friend to friend is better, even if it's done in person. Um, and we are still, uh, we are seeing more and more organizations adopt, you know, relational or friend to friend outreach. It's not that organizations are against this approach. It's that they haven't quite figured out the best way to scale this yet. Um, with Cold contact, you know, people have been doing that for 50 years, and you can just get a list of homes and just knock on doors one at a time with a friend. And you can even out. hire people to do it, right? Like that, you can't hire someone necessarily to get, tell all their friends to vote for a candidate with sincerity. Exactly, exactly. So it's one of those things that you can just throw money at it, right? And so if you want to advertise, you know, you can put money on Facebook or on TV or on radio. You can also just throw money at paid canvassing and have people to do it or cold phone banking. With relational, you need to really uh, get supporters that are passionate about your cause or campaign and inspire them to reach out to their friends. And so that's what's been the trick. How do you scale that in an efficient manner? And to do that well, you do need to start much earlier. Whereas paid canvassing, maybe you just do that in the last week or 30 days and you can just do everything last minute. Um, but for relational organizing, you need to start earlier and actually develop the relationship. And most organizations aren't set up that way. They start with fundraising and then they do field in the last 30 to 60 days. If you want to do relational well for things like turnout, you need to be starting your field program for relational uh, much earlier.
you kind of an anticipated my next question because I, I was going to ask you, you know, with these steady results that show such a great lift from the friend to friend outreach, um, you know, you, you don't want to apply that just to one or two percent of the electorate. You want to apply that to the largest possible uh, percentage of the electorate, you know, or else or else your lift is going to be much smaller. Right. In, in terms of the uh, overall uh, voter turnout and uh, and candidate preference. What are the, the keys that you've seen besides starting early uh, to reaching enough voters to make a difference? And maybe I know there's something cool. I don't know how you've developed it in the past several months, but about um, these kind of nodes in a network of, of, of peers or, uh, you know, in a community. I'm, I'm interested in that as well. Yeah. So high level where we've seen the most success is when you it's organizations and campaigns that start early, you know, they are organized and have a lot of planning. But when you start early, you need to approach the, your, you need to approach your campaign, your effort a little bit different. If it's six months before election day, it's going to be a little bit odd to have supporters reach out and say, hey, will you vote for my friend? But okay. what you can do is you can ask them to come to an event. And that's where if you start early, where it works really, really well is you have hosts of an event or a meet and greet use uh, you know outreach circle to find a bunch of their friends that are in the area and have them come to an event and so it's effectively a tacit or uh, endorsement and it will eventually reach um, increased turnout but if you start with get give me a vote that doesn't really make sense and the other reason why this works well is most organizations even if their field program comes later they start with grass top organizing, fundraising events early on, you know, pretty much day one. And so this works well that it, it kind of jives with what campaigns and organizations want to do early. They always want to do events. They always want to do fundraising. So even if your field infrastructure is not built out, you can start this way in evangelizing for events and fundraising. And that naturally builds into your field program. Have you seen campaigns reach, you know, say more than 50% of the electorate with this type of strategy? And uh, can you tell, tell me about campaigns, like what are some of the unique or uniquely successful ways you've seen people use this? Because obviously, like, you know, you mentioned with these uh, more uh, seasoned organizations, it's like getting your head around how to change. And I know as in selling technology in the past, you go in and sometimes the pain they know, you know, is, is what they want to deal with. They don't want to have to transition to a new way of being. So success stories. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of percentage of electorate, I think the largest I've seen is kind of 30 or 40% of the electorate. And that's with kind of smaller city council and school board races. Okay. And then the larger races, we've seen the ability to get out to millions of voters. But we haven't yet gotten to the point where, you know, we have state of California where you're able to get to 10 million voters. So hopefully that will come in time. But some of the success stories we've seen, you know, there was a, a really controversial school board race a couple of years ago where, believe it or not, $15 million was sent, spent between both sides on, oh a LA Unified, on an LA Unified school board race. And if you talk to our client, uh, they credit Outreach Circle for winning that race, even though uh, so much money was spent in the race. The turnout was really low. And using Outreach Circle, they got the right people to turn out to vote, and they won that race. And so even though an, an insane amount of money was spent, they credit Outreach Circle to winning that race. Um, another success story that I always like talking about is a congressional primary in Washington State um, where uh, Dylan Kate, one of the best organizers we've worked with, in about two months, he got 300 supporters to reach out to 50,000 unique voters in a, wow. in a congressional primary. And he was measuring how many IDs per hour he can get from his organizers, getting them to knock on doors or call people themselves or getting volunteers to knock on doors or um, phone bank. And they were measuring more IDs per hour doing uh, relational organizing. So they actually scrapped all of their phone and door efforts and actually did a pure relational campaign. And that candidate uh, was an underdog and made it to the general election, which was uh, pretty fascinating. Um, we've also had other races that have been larger in scale, higher profile that have been fascinating. You know, uh, Senator Jones, when he was running um, for the first time, 
they actually ran an interesting campaign where they were trying to suppress or not suppress they were trying to instead of focusing on getting black voters to turn out they were trying to um have white voters be unsure of who they should vote for mm-hmm. to so to effectively reduce turnout or have um white voters vote for an independent instead of voting for the Republican candidate. So that was pretty fascinating. I uh, had an experience recently with a candidate I worked with over the summer, Shahid Buttar in San Francisco. I showed up to one of his events and they tried to get me to sign in. And I, I was, you know, and they, then they said, oh, just, just click the QR code. And I was like, oh, I don't have a QR code app. And that was the moment that I learned that apparently all phone cameras are now QR code apps. Um, and so all you have to do is point your camera at... I think you told me that, but I didn't quite understand it until I'm sitting there looking at, you know, the clipboard and it was like a clipboard, you know, and they had the, the manual sign in too, if you, if you were, you know, refused to do it or whatever, but it was great because this was like a volunteer appreciation event. There's like 15 hardcore supporters there. It's like at a bar and they're passing around the, the clipboard. You take a picture, it sends you to, to uh, outreach circle to, to the candidates page. And then um, it's really simple to click, and confirm that you're at this particular event. And same thing happened, I went to like a protest where they were rallying um, the candidate supporters to this protest. And, uh, you know, they were going around, you know, are you here with Shahid? Okay, you know, sign in, and you sign in. So not only do they have a record of like the level of support, you know, like, for example, I was at two events in a week, um, which is something that, that Nation Builder uh, really, I think, pioneered is really understanding kind of the record of a supporter and um, Nation Builder was good because you could see like their Twitter activity and any meetings you'd had with them and also their RSVPs. But um, that tool in action was like so useful and the way it bridged uh, the offline events with the technology uh, so seamlessly was just something, um, you know, I'm sure there are other tools out there that, that can do this, but it was so great. So, there are now three parts of Outreach Circle uh, instead of just the relational organizing that was the, uh, the crux when I came um, you know, aboard as an advisor. Can you explain kind of the three key tool sets within, within Outreach Circle? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one that you alluded to, it's our supporter action hub. It's basically a volunteer portal. And what that does, and by supporter or volunteer, we're talking about donor, staff, friends, family. It's kind of more of a broader term. And what that does is it makes it really easy to recruit, engage, and activate your base. And so recruiting, one of the things we found is anytime supporters join a cause, the first thing they do is type in, or not type in, in a manual paper pencil sign-up form, they're writing their name and contact information. Then an intern will have to type that information into a database, and then you'll have to send them an email and they get onto the flow. And that creates a lot of leakage. Um, There's data entry issues. It's a lot of headache. So we thought, why don't we make this really simple that someone can just take their QR, their phone, and automatically sign up digitally, and there's no data entry. And we found out that QR code readers are embedded now on all iPhones, and quickly it's happening on Android as well. And so there is no data entry. And right then and there, they can activate that supporter. They can share on social media. They can donate all right then and there. And when we redesigned the platform, one of the things we did is we made sure that the new platform, you don't need to download an app. 90% of the functionality you can do from any browser. And then some of the advanced features, you would download the Android or iPhone app. So imagine- When you you, say new platform, when did you uh, launch the the new, the, the current Outreach Circle? Oh, great. Yeah, so Outreach Circle, the platform was launched about a year ago, maybe nine months ago, and we changed the name of the company as well. And what's nice here is imagine if you were at that event and they said download with QR code. Well, if you had to open up your phone and then you had to download an app, wait for the app to download. And if you have bad cell coverage, you have to wait again. It just takes too long. Oh, this is, was revolutionary because I've been, you know, I'm familiar with that, like really onerous way of doing it. And I know from working with volunteers and with, you know, voters that, people not only do not want to do that, some of them can't, you know, and it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And if they have data plans and things like that, it becomes really onerous. So right now our current platform, it takes about 15 seconds to onboard people. 
but we're finding that we found, uh, we did some R&D on this and we figured out a way to get that even faster. So in the next month or two, we're gonna have a super rapid onboarding process where we can onboard someone in about two seconds. Um, and wow. once we get that out, that is really what we want to enable at things like climate marches, women's marches, et cetera. If you have an organization that wants to recruit supporters, they can just have a big sign up and any a thousand people at one time could take their phone, put it on that QR code, and two, second late, two seconds later, they could you know, have a feed of actions they can take, share on social, engage. That is that incredible. Campaign. Point your phone. So you could say, point your phone here uh, to take action, right? Or whatever, you know, save the climate. Yeah, I mean, what's awesome about this, there's a whole bunch of other use cases here. So imagine if you're um, doing movie screenings and at the end of the movie, everyone can just put their phone up there and two seconds later, you have all their information. They can oh, engage. my gosh. So you could be, yeah, because this is incredible. I went to uh, a screening recently of a, uh, a, a film about um, state voter suppression through, uh, you know, like in Georgia, right? And, uh, and it was a fundraiser. So at the end, they passed around all this stuff, you know, <laughs> and I think you would probably always want to do both because you don't know that people are going to do it. Sure. But the data, the, the ability, and this is the thing, is you've got to get the information of the people who are there. And, you know, I, like, meant to make a donation, and, uh, but, you know, and then that paper kind of stayed on my desk, and then I didn't, you know, get any kind of follow-up because they don't even know my name. Yeah, and if you keep on thinking through that, think about other things you could do. You could be at a concert, right? And so if you have, you know, Chicago, they have Taste of Chicago, and they have all these summer festivals. You right. can do it at a concert and you can also do this with one of the things we've always struggled with is how can we be helpful with petition signatures or paid canvassing. Now, if a paid canvasser goes out and they find someone that's really supportive on their clipboard, they can have that QR code there and they can onboard someone in two seconds without slowing them down. Or if you're collecting wow. petitions, you can onboard someone in two seconds. So not only are you getting that petition, you are organizing and mobilizing a grassroots base along the way as well. Plus, it's interesting, uh, again, you know, it's, it's, it's wild how fast the technology changes. But several years ago, we were talking about uh, tablets, right? And, and organizers having to carry tablets. But it never worked because it's a weird, intimidating thing to have someone come to your door holding like a 10-inch computer screen. But now, uh, you know, almost everyone has a smartphone. Now, can people use the, uh, you know, say their phone is not capable of, of getting the QR code, the organizer can also onboard them through their own phone? So what, well, so what you can do basically is any, an organizer, they have a recruit button that they'll have on their phone. And if they click on that, it'll show them an app code, the name of the organization, uh, a QR code. So they can just text that person a link they can show them their phone. They can say, hey, just go to outreachcircle.com and search for this organization. So if they don't have the QR code, they can get on any which way. So we've just made it super, super easy. And they can also just go on and click on that link for somebody and sign them up also. So it's just really, really easy. So a lot of the campaigns that, that I talk to, and I'm sure you too, because the, it's usually grassroots folks who want to adopt new technology because they need, they can't spend the millions and millions. And, and there's the rare case like the school board where millions are spent and they are also using, you know, using this tool. But a lot of folks who can spend the millions, I think, are kind of like, you know, they know what they're doing or, or they hire big marketing firms that aren't necessarily uh, also going to adopt new technology. The grassroots folks, though, then don't have a lot of resources. And, um, you know, it sounds like someone who scrapped doors and phones for relational organizing because it was uh, so productive isn't isn't the common case. Like you you have to um, you have to allocate resources. How would you advise a campaign that's saying I want to use something like Outreach Circle, but you know I, I I'm going to have to cut something else? What are the things that it replaces in terms of how campaigns spend money? Yeah, good question. So what we were finding is the issue wasn't necessarily finding budget for Outreach Circle. It was more finding time and bandwidth to uh, implement Outreach Circle. Because okay. yeah. if they wanted to do phone and door, we're not going to say, hey, don't do phone and door, do Outreach Circle instead. The problem was they don't have enough time to do everything. 
And so what we've done with this Action Hub is you can integrate all of your efforts into one place because the reality is every volunteer is the same. Some will want to donate, right. some will want to do phone, some will want to do door, some will want to do relational. So now in the same platform using our Supporter Action Hub, you can get a volunteer, get them on, and they can help in the way that is best for them. And they can do all of those different things. And budget should not be an issue. I mean, we have our free platform that uh, for those that have no budget, for down ballot races, city council races, things like that, it starts at $30 a month. And you know, if you're a congressional race, you know, if you take our highest value platform, it's $500 a month. So these are not crazy expensive campaigns. You know, we have more expensive plans for statewide and national efforts, but those are more uh, resourced and they have the budget. So this is not meant to be an expensive tool. When I ran for office, I was outspent 30 to one. A PAC wow. came in, put in 100,000 against me in my race as a first time candidate. So I, ha I, feel, I remember what it felt like to get overspent. And so I wanted to empower those campaigns that are people campaigns that may not have the budget of the more well-resourced campaigns. That's awesome. I, you know, I'm kind of thinking of it like all of these activities are happening in a campaign already. If it's a good campaign, like people are looking at their, at their contacts and they're saying, who can I contact to, uh, you know, to help saying, right. And this is what you went through in your own election before the, before this technology existed. Um, but that information is very siloed and, um, you know, especially now that you've got the supporter hub and the affinity texting, which I have just one question about, uh, and this, you know, in the, the relational supporter outreach, it's, it's almost like you need a PM within your campaign. Who's going to, you know, just like any other part of a successful campaign, you have field organizer, you need an, you need an outreach circle organizer in your campaign. That's like, should be a role. And then from there, it's just making everything that a good campaign does uh, a little bit more simple. I mean, that's putting in, I guess it's a pretty big plug, but I think that we've got to adapt because that's how I, my, one of my biggest issues and we call the show Adriel versus the oligarchs. Cause I just hate big money having so much influence in our elections. And right now it's like, you know, anyone who's works in the industry knows that like still like 90% of the stuff is funded that way, but we're seeing a, a surge of, grassroots interest, uh, grassroots funding, and then I would say, you know, grassroots technology over the last several years. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when we started the company, the vision was we wanted our democracy to be more about people and ideas and less about money and special interests. So that's why we started the company, just to reduce the cost of outreach so we can make it easier for organizations or causes or campaigns to reach the people that they needed to reach. And so we thought if things are more cheaper and efficient, you know, you can have a more representative democracy. So totally right. it's kind of like, that. I mean, another idea around that that's, that's uh, a, a funding idea is the like democracy dollars, right? Which uh, I think Rokana talks about it. I think uh, Andrew Yang talks about it. They've done experiments. I think it's Seattle, I want to say. Yeah, Seattle. Each, uh, each voter gets a certain amount of uh, dollars they can attribute to uh, candidates. I like that a lot. In San Francisco, I recently moved, but I was living there for several years and I'm very involved in the political system there for maybe a couple of decades. And they have public financing and it's always about like the match rates. And that's really interesting to me because I don't think that like, I don't think you should automatically give a candidate government money, but I think that you should allow citizen support to reflect itself in candidates getting government money. Um, you know, you, just because you say I want to run for office, I don't think you're entitled. This is my opinion. Um, but it's difficult. For example, if you have to, you know, your match is like uh, two to one and then, you know, each person can give you $250. Most people can't give $250, but they right. could give you their democracy bucks or they could give you $10 as a signal of support. Right. And so, um, sorry, that's a total tangent. Let, question about affinity texting. So this is something that's new and I think it's one of your newest tools and it's different than the texting, the super high volume stuff people are used to that is like that last minute GOTV um, and also a lot of folks I think are texting for Sanders right now um, and, and it's this like uh, rapid fire, you know, people say I just did 250, you know, et cetera. Can you tell us how 
affinity texting is different and like what the different use cases for these two styles of texting might be? Yeah, absolutely. So we've had for a number of years, people asking us, Hey, can we just assign a list of contacts for a supporter and have them reach out? And you can do that with, you know, a peer, traditional peer-to-peer -peer and other texting services, but the messages always come from um, a third-party number, a computer-generated number, or a short code. And so it's not coming from a real live person's number. And so that causes problems in a number of use cases. Let's say um, fundraising, for example. You have a candidate doing call time, and they've called 200 people in the quarter, and you know, 100 set have donated and 100 said they'll donate, but they haven't. You could email them, you know, that will get lost in the shuffle. You don't have time to call all of them again. But here, the candidate can just text all of them from his personal number very, very quickly saying, hey, we spoke earlier. You said you would donate. It'd be great if you could do that. Just click below. And here's my number. You can call or text me anytime. Or let's say you have an organizer that has 100 employees for a labor union or 100 volunteers for a campaign that they're responsible for. If you use a third-party texting service, there's no connection between them because the number changes and it's not their number. Here, you know, a union organizer is often responsible for a couple hundred people. There's no way for them to efficiently keep in touch with them. So what this allows for is that, let's say, at the beginning of the year, there's your annual union meeting, and the organizer goes there, introduces themselves, saying, hey, this is my name. You can reach out to me anytime, and there's 200 people there. After the meeting, they can quickly text all of them one at a time. It'll take them about two, three minutes and says, hey, my name is Joni. I'm your organizer. I'm your union rep. Here's my number. Just save it on your phone. Text me, call me anytime. And what they've done is they've now initiated and formed 200 personal one-on-one -on -one private texting relationships that they can keep going anytime they want. And so maybe there's a, a fundraising drive or there's a thank you message or, you know, there's a rally. Oh, it, that's amazing because I, you know, when I think about a campaign, like I worked on a campaign plan for Shahed, right? And it has to reach X number of people. You have to have like X number of organizers at like each level. And so what you're saying is that you could have your like 150 people who are your contacts or in your phone. Um, and this is also the record. Does the record stay in the software as well? Or is most of the record on the phone? The record stays in the software as well. We don't record the conversation, um, but that a text was actually sent, we can track that and you can assign lists. So you could do Dear Neighbor texting programs similar to Dear Neighbor postcards here if you wanted to. Right. And you could assign a local volunteer, 500 people, to form and initiate a relationship in their community. So my last question, and this is like, I don't know if I'm, I'm getting old and not learning things as fast as I, as I used to, but, um, I think you're I, getting old. Uh, um, I think you're, I, I think you're older than me. So you, you know, right. You know Fair. what's happening. You, you've like, uh, you've traveled this path and, um, what I want for, for like the campaigns that I talk to is like, and you know, if I'm working with a campaign, I want like the coaches, like the life coaches of Outreach Circle, you know, who every week they get on the phone with you and they make sure that you're actually doing what you need to do. And do you, do you provide that as a service or can you recommend people? Like, can I get like, a, you know, the half dozen people who I could hire or someone could hire to do this kind of work? Yeah, no, we actually do provide uh, consulting services. And so one of our uh, our best run campaigns are that wasn't a setup by the way I didn't know you provided consulting services but it's like so often that's like what I'm missing because I don't have the time to run it for campaigns but I want yeah, them no, to we, use it we absolutely do that so like the Doug Jones campaign you know we helped run that effort so we do that and you know for congressional our standard pricing is 500 a month if you want extra consulting services you know it'll be a thousand dollars a month you know we have plans for local school board races we have a consultant we're working with in uh, San Francisco right now, we're doing 1020 parcel tax measures with them. And so we provide wow. premium consulting services, uh, statewide national efforts. It's typically a couple thousand a month that we'll do that. And then if it's something that we can't handle, we have a whole roster of consultants, organizers that we've worked with that we know do a great job and we bring them on to uh, projects as well. That's so awesome to hear, you know, to get kind of into like, I should 
I should get back to talking more about like the entrepreneurial side of all of this. It was really invigorating uh, last week to talk. I talked to two of my former nation builder colleagues, uh, one who was on our data team and one who was a trainer and they're launching a new company, right? Doing grassroots technology. And um, this is what, uh, if, if you're, a, if you're a movement person, if you're trying, if you say that like the world needs to be more equitable People need to not be freezing in the streets. People need to not, kids shouldn't be going to school hungry. Um, like things have to change. They have to change rapidly, especially because of the climate. Like that's the, the really, really urgent issue. This stuff is, is accessible. And it's also really interesting that more mature companies, you know, you've been at this for like five years. Uh, they have to have this network of partners who you can trust to send uh, your technology subscription client. And then uh, Nation Builder also learned that you have to have some level of in-house consulting services for your most important customers, or they're never going to be as successful as they could be. Yeah, you know, around that, we've also started a development services arm. So if our clients need, have technical needs where they need a custom build or a white label product, we'll do that as well. And then there's lots of civic tech and political tech companies that are really struggling to find good talent. So we'll actually partner and actually build technology for other uh, companies as well. So if your two friends are struggling to get a development team together, you know, we can build for them um, in adjacent oh, wow. markets. And um, talk about the incubators or accelerators that you worked with in this civic tech progressive space. Because I know that you, uh, you, know, you only work with progressive Democrats, you know, Democrats and progressives like the left. How, how did those decisions happen, you know, coming from you as a initial sole founder or, or did you have co-founders as well? Yeah, we have co-founders as well. Um, so the incubators that we've been part of, so new media ventures, um, based in San Francisco, they've been awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, higher ground labs or is an investor of ours. Um, Great. Yeah. Higher ground. I think, uh, it was the accelerator for open field. We were talking with last week. I was going to say, there's a name that we keep hearing. Yeah, they've both been awesome. And then recently we were, uh, we've been accepted for the first cohort for the Black Bod Social Good Challenge. So we're, oh, wow. part of, we're part of their nonprofit accelerator as well. So all three of these have just been uh, great partners and we're really excited to work with them. Um, my, my advisory stock is sounding better and better. Saying, you know. <laughs> doing, doing the best that we can. If you want more information, uh, client.outreachcircle.com. You can also contact me at Sang, like I sang a song at OutreachCircle.com or support at OutreachCircle.com. Awesome. Thanks so much and continued success, Sang. Thanks a lot, Sang. Thanks for uh, stopping by. You get an organizer who wants to use this technology and it basically like 10Xs your productivity. This Let's new segment. talk about Judd. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to, so, you know, you had uh, talked about this article that he wrote for The Hill, correct? And uh, No, no. I think that the article in The Hill is another uh, writer. It's, it's just overwhelming oh, Facebook oh, okay. criticism. Yeah. Okay. I can so give he, a rundown real quick of this article in The Hill, and I want to, I'll, I'll cite the, uh, the, the, the author. It's uh, Chris Mills Rodrigo. And uh, the headline, this is a story that just came out this week. It says, critics fear Facebook fact checkers losing misinformation fight. And this is not information that I hadn't gleaned during my own uh, fight with Facebook and, and activism related to, uh, to pointing a spotlight on how they actively promote disinformation through paid media. Um, but he, there's this issue with the fact checkers. And I've said, like, maybe it's not good that Facebook has basically paid off a bunch of organizations to, like, work for it supposedly independently, but it makes it much harder to critique it. Like two of the organizations contacted wouldn't speak to, to Chris. Um, he says that there's only six fact-checking organizations. They only have 26 employees. And it looks like from the rundown that they're only fact-checking hundreds of low hundreds of Facebook stories or posts or memes or whatever per month in the United States. And, you know, I, I could probably see, uh, you know, hundreds of things per month myself. Uh, and I've got to think that there's a lot, much larger volume. I've heard PolitiFact talk about this and they say that, that, that there's a never ending stream of 
posts that they could fact check. And then you find out that like, you know, and they say they only get to a few of them, you know, a very small percentage, like on a daily basis, like a few of some of these guys were fact checking, I think less than 50, 50 things a month. Um, so, well, the crux of Judd's uh, big long thread on this, which we will link as well, is yeah. also that uh, uh, Facebook's position is that each ad has to be rated independently. So if it contains claims already ruled false by a fact checker, that makes no difference. And so uh, Judd cites the example of the Committee to Defend the President, uh, which is a pro-Trump super PAC, uh, running three, at least three different versions of this bogus ad about Joe Biden. And so it can just run a slightly different version of the of an ad that it ran before, and it is not... Uh, it, that's fresh uh, material that has to be fact-checked again. Right. That happened in, in the case where I uh, made an ad through the pack that, that the Real Hampton Group uh, works for, which is my pack as well. It's a, it's a nice, small, underfunded family. And uh, we did an ad that, that was blatantly false, that uh, played off a scenario that had been in the news. And... Uh, it got fact-checked because it was making headlines. And the fact-checker, uh, he told me he wanted to fact-check it because he knew that he would get in the news cycle. You know, like that, he didn't say I would get in the news cycle, but he knew this was a big deal. It was a big story. So he wanted to be the fact-checker who fact-checked it. He did that. Um, and then I reposted the video, which had gone viral in the, like, mainstream news. And on my PAC Facebook page, and I said – this is the ad that like, you know, is going viral or something, or this ad, you know, went viral challenging Facebook's policies. That second ad also got flagged and suppressed. It basically, it got fact-checked and it was because it had already been debunked and they were like very quick on it. And then they also, uh, I ran the same uh, ad on Mike Gravel's page with his blessing and uh, and they shut it down there as well. And they said it wasn't necessarily because they make like the fact checkers can also make a determination whether someone is a valid politician or not. And do they consider like an emeritus politician? So there's like a lot of um, gray area, a lot of uh, opaqueness about these policies. But the biggest thing that I think to draw from Judd and uh, and Chris uh, and they're reporting this week is that uh, Facebook, it's lipstick on a pig to have one in 100 pieces of misinformation fact-checked. And as Judd points out, it's not even until, and as you, yeah, you're pointing out, it's not even until the fact-checker, it, it has to get their attention for them even to do anything because otherwise Facebook just lets the ad go up. They let, you know, complaints filter in. It may or may not get into the queue to be fact-checked. And then very unlikely that any given piece of content actually gets a fact-check, even if it's been flagged. So the system is totally bogus. Well, there's a lot of lipsticks on a lot of different pigs because one of the things that uh, additionally that Facebook did at the end of the year was announce that they would no longer uh, run ads calling for people not to vote. Um, but that seems like a meaningless threshold because uh, there are so few ads that would explicitly. That's call not for what that. you would do. Yeah, because with yeah. Hillary Clinton, they ran ads, the Trump campaign ran ads, like of her uh, saying, you know, things like super predator, right? And uh, that then, then if you're uh, an African American voter who, who is on the fence about uh, whether to go vote, or if you're a, a, you know, a liberal who, who's concerned about mass incarceration, they could give you that same message. And we know that, they, that, they, that that's what they did. So it's not, it's, it's so, I mean, you can't say enough times that like Facebook's policies as they stand and its business practices are, are a threat to, you know, liberal democracy, like to the equality and uh, human rights of every person. Like it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, we're totally going long here, but uh, no, that's, these were, that's these fine. stories I mean, were such so in our wheelhouse. I think that there was such an urgency to, you know, to, to the, this latest thread uh, that Judd published, you know, because, uh, you know, he thinks that this is getting, this has a really, really good chance of swinging the election. It could have that level of consequences. He says, 
because it's not 1992. Online ads are a big deal. They could determine the outcome of the 2020 election. Uh, that's why I'm spending time on this. And then he, uh, of course, uh, is, is really worth supporting. His uh, popular.info uh, site uh, is about accountability journalism and people. Oh, his totally, reporting has really totally reinvigorated a lot of my own activism, you know, because it, it, uh, it's, it's like he, he calls it, I think, accountability journalism. Uh, it's not. It's not activist in the way that some journalism is, but it really gets your blood boiling about um, abuses of power uh, in, you know, these just gross, like Facebook has, they have the ability to do so much better and they've just totally chosen not to. And we know that the Trump campaign in 2016 credited Facebook with their victory. You know, just like Sang was talking about a campaign that said, you know, we spent, you know, millions of dollars on this school board race. It's like a really unusual high level of spending. And yet this one tool made the difference. And that's what Facebook is for Donald Trump. And we can't like, I think that people who like have gotten sick of Facebook and are like done with its, its corruption are kind of like, you know, they're, it's easy to lose sight that it's an urgent problem and that 250 million Americans log on to Facebook every month. Um, let's talk about a few other stories really quick. Um, and uh, it'd be great if we can, can link these, because I, I never give them justice. But basically, we did an episode where we talked about the newsletters that, that, that I'm reading uh, as I prepare for the show and just as I do my work as a political strategist and, uh, and activist, you know, we're basically, I'm, I'm trying to get at least read the headlines of something like 50 to 100 uh, good kind of political tech, democracy, human society related uh, journalism and, um, and then boiling it down to just a few things that are relevant to our topics. So there's this great report on Facebook's coordinated inauthentic behavior. And this is something that it's wonky. It's something you need to, uh, to, to love data to get into, but it's, it's actually, I mean, it's also a good breakdown of, of data that uh, the layperson would have difficulty uh, interpreting. So they basically taken a lot of Facebook's own data that it releases publicly to researchers, and they've mapped all these disinformation campaigns. And one of the really interesting things that it says is there's also, there's a lot of, like the US gets a lot of attention, the UK gets a lot of attention. Um, there's a lot of uh, the Rohingya Facebook genocide gets a lot of attention. But there's also all of these smaller electoral disinformation campaigns going on um, that get lost in the, in the level of some of the bigger cases or the ones that just get more media attention. Um, so great report. You can check it out, uh, you know, in the podcast notes. I'm going to read their closing remark from these researchers and everything is open source. They're, they're, they're a GitHub where you can uh, review their data. Um, it says Facebook and other social media giants are failing at keeping up with the spread of disinformation and media manipulation. It's unclear if campaign orchestrators are also adapting their strategy to make legitimate accounts of opposition voices look like false positives, which would mean actors have found a way to weaponize Facebook even further as an anti-democratic tool. Think about how frightening that is. So not only are uh, uh, bad actors now pretending to be people they're not, et cetera, they're also getting the platforms to attack legitimate activists, right? To mitigate the ramifications this has had, more information urgently needs to be disclosed and released by Facebook. So they're basically saying, despite Facebook releasing a lot of information to researchers, they're not doing nearly enough. It's a big black box. We have, uh, and then, and they're basically saying that Facebook is not able to stay on top of this problem. Okay, so uh, <laughs> there's a theme here. There's always a theme. Um, yeah, and, for sure. <laughs> the uh, other story I was really... Um, interested in this week was uh, Ethan Zuckerman uh, released a report published through the Knight First Amendment Institute. And um, it's, it's about like, what does the future, what does like a people's uh, social media infrastructure look like? And he calls it digital public infrastructure. And this is, um, and, and he's, he's optimistic because it's so easy to go, yeah, Facebook, you know, so bad, et cetera. What would the alternative look like. And one of the points that, that he makes is that uh, it's not going to be profitable to have a public infrastructure for the internet, you know, for the digital, digital community, for the digital public commons. It's like, and we need to start thinking about it. Like we, not only was the internet originally like a government funded, you know, like military research 
uh, product. Um, but every time uh, you have something that belongs to the public, it's invested in by the public. So we've got to think about like, we've got to have social media that's not for profit, basically, right? And he says that, that a lot of, uh, what you want to look at is the history of public media. Uh, and he says specifically the BBC. Um, and how do you fund this? You could actually tax surveillance advertising. And he says both as a way of discouraging the business model and of raising money. Uh, the funds could go to national projects focused on innovation around digital public infrastructure. So, um, we're going to link to a medium article that medium article links to a much, you know, to Ethan's full, uh, paper, um, if you want to read more. The last, what we're reading today is actually super creepy stuff, um, although it does remind me, I, Matt, did you follow the news about uh, Ring, uh, the Amazon-owned doorbell that uh, has a camera on it and can be monitored remotely about them partnering with law enforcement all over the country? I have been following that, and it sounds like a horrible dystopian uh, science fiction story, uh, like Minority Report or something like that. Right. So it, it gets much worse when you add, and, and I'm not saying that, that those, these two companies or these uh, two stories ha are directly related, but they sure are in terms of the themes and the content. Uh, and, and I don't know about the level of partnerships and the level of overlap between the agencies working with these two companies. But basically, you have this company called Clearview AI that has been harvesting like hundreds of millions of faces from the internet and linking them to names. So like, you know, your LinkedIn photo and your name. And then they've like trained their AI to match the faces like from other uh, cameras, other images. And they're working over the past several months, it's revealed by a New York Times uh, story, uh, they have uh, partnered with like 600 law enforcement agencies. So this, um, we need our fucking legislators to step up to the plate because uh, we're totally getting pwned by these companies. I was talking to a potential client this week and one of the things uh, that immediately came to my mind was the one website page that every campaign must have. Um, and this comes up a lot because I need this page. And also if someone doesn't have it, like there's nothing you can do to help at the end of a heated campaign. So in, in talking with saying you're like certain activities that you do five months out, other activities you're doing in the last month. And then there's just like this rush to get out the vote in the last few days. And like no one is sleeping, everyone's working their ass off. They might be working a different role than usual because you know you go from being the speech writer to like uh, you know, calling voters who, who were ID'd by the campaign, right? Um, so what is this one page every campaign website must have? It is your GOTV page, telling your voters how to vote, where to vote, uh, and uh, any, you know, any, anything else you have. If you have a voter protection hotline you wanna send them to, and sometimes this can simply be uh, a, a, an embed of another resource uh, on your web page. It could be a series of links, but it needs to have good, actionable, uh, how to vote information. Okay, and so why do you have to have this on your campaign website, especially if you're just embedding someone else's resource? It's because if you run Google search ads in the last few days of the election, there's massive volume of people searching for how to vote and for voter information. And if you're, can, you can have an ad that very cheaply captures their attention for a minute and they can click through to your website, get the information they're looking for, but also see your campaign branding and hopefully you know, be reminded that this is the person that, oh yeah, they texted me that one time or my friend sent me an email about them. Um, if you don't have that page though, you can't run those ads and often it's really hard to build a web page on the fly for a small campaign. Uh, so make sure that this is something that you plan for so that you can execute uh, on a search strategy and get voters uh, to remember your name and get to the polls. <laughs> <laughs>